Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Isabel Machado, and I'll be your host for this episode. And today I'm very, very excited to talk to Dr. Amy Tooth Murphy about New Directions in Queer Oral History, Archives of Disruption. The book was co-edited with Claire Summerskill and Emma Vickers, and it was published by Routledge in 2022. New Directions in Queer Oral History is a comprehensive international collection that reflects on the practice, purpose, and functionality of queer oral history, and in doing so, demonstrates the vibrancy and innovation of this rapidly evolving field. Drawing on the roots of oral history's original commitment to history from below, queer oral history has become an indispensable methodology at the heart of queer studies. Expanding and extending the existing canon, This book offers up key observations about queer oral history as a methodology and how it might be advanced through cutting-edge approaches. The collection contains a mix of contributions from established scholars, early career researchers, postgraduate students, archivists, and activists, ensuring its accessibility and wide appeal. Dr. Amy Tooth Murphy is lecturer in oral history at Royal Holloway, University of London, where her specializations include queer oral history, post-war lesbian history of Britain, and oral history theory and method. She's a trustee of the Oral History Society and a co-founder and editor of the peer-reviewed blog, Notches, Remarks on the History of Sexuality. Amy, welcome to New Books and Gender Studies. Thank you, Isabel. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So let's begin uh, with a question that I always ask folks who come in this podcast. I want to know your book's origin story or how did this book come about? Yeah, it's a really great question, actually. Um, Edited collections can have interesting backstories uh, because so many people are involved uh, in bringing an edited collection together. And this story actually begins with a conversation, uh, oral historians can be chatty people, so uh, you know, which is, is a good thing for our discipline. Um, there is a, a, a special interest group in the Oral History Society, of which I'm a, a member, and it's an LGBTQ special interest group. So lots of different people, academics um, at all stages of their career, practitioners, activists, community members, uh, can be part of this special interest group. And we come together regularly for in-person and online events, which may be talks, presentations, but also just discussions about this practice that we're all involved in, queer oral history. And the initial idea for this collection happened around a table um, at the London Metropolitan Archive, where we started to say, hey, it's going to be 10 years since Bodies of Evidence, which I expect we're going to talk about that book a little bit later. Um, what, what's, what's happened since? Let's, let's talk about that, you know, and it seemed an important occasion to mark. And somebody said, hey, what do you think about, would anybody here be interested in doing something similar, you know, to mark the kind of uh, nearly 10 years since that um, happened? And people immediately were quite excited, you know, so immediately we knew we had a good idea and 
the next step was then to put out the call for papers. And we were particularly keen that we wanted to represent UK queer oral history as we were a UK group. Uh, We're we're an international group. Anybody can be involved, but most of our members are in the UK and we're based in the UK. Um, So we wanted to showcase UK work. And we also wanted to, if we could extend that and expand that out to um, uh, have as international view as possible. So that was the next stage. We took it from that discussion room around that board table to um, a more international discussion of how could we bring this edited collection together. So that's how it came about uh, from a very small discussion to then something that kind of stretched out across a few different continents. So that's been really exciting to see that development. Let's begin by defining queer oral history. What makes queer oral history queer? Again, a very good question um, and a difficult question, right? Because, to, I mean, even before we can answer that, you then have to say, what are the what are the component parts of that mean? So what is queer anyway? So we, and we went back and forth with this on the collection too. You know, what do we mean by this? So... Some people may be um, wondering, you know, why don't you call it LGBTQ oral history? And for me, and I want to say, you know, there were three co-editors involved in this book, and I'm the only one here talking to you today. So I want to be clear that anything that I'm saying is, you know, I'm coming from my own perspective here, and the three of us are all have different takes on the topic. Um, But I'll speak, you know, as much as I can um, for the collection and what we were trying to do. So this idea, why was it not LGBTQ oral history? Well, in part, it's to deal with um, what queer historians in general are trying to deal with, which is the problem of terminology and the anachronisms that can um, occur when we employ contemporary language that means a lot to us, but may mean a lot less to people in the past. So queer historians in general have employed this word queer as a way to kind of get away from the fixity of the words that we may now uh, recognize lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, so that we can understand people in the past without um, only being able to see them through our own lens. Of course, we can never fully understand the the desires and passions of people um, other than ourselves, but queer gives us a looser umbrella to try to understand um, gender and sexual non-conformity in the past. So then it's important for us to acknowledge that as oral historians too, And it also is about the method. So if we call it LGBTQ oral history, what we're talking about there is oral histories with people who identify as LGBTQ. And in a way, many of the authors here did that, but not all of them were doing that. And actually some of them are doing something which is using queer methodology, so borrowing from queer theory, to employ sort of disruptive practices in in their interview uh, methodology. So for example, you know, we have uh, chapters in here with people who are interviewing some of their interviewees are not even LGBTQ people, but they're talking around topics which are related to LGBTQ lives. And so then you realize the usefulness of the word queer, because how do we do, how do we kind of get at stories which the mainstream record or which the dominant narrative doesn't make space for? Well, we can employ queer tactics and techniques and strategies to try to hear what is usually spoken over or silenced. So that's a long answer for a short question. No, no, that, that's a wonderful answer, and one that's very useful to me uh, when we think about, you know, the when we bring methodology into this uh, equation here. So, f- for me, for instance, after reading both New Directions and Queer Oral History and Bodies of Evidence, which yes, we will talk a bit more about in a minute, but I started thinking, right, questioning what I'm doing in the sense that. 
I do conduct oral histories uh, projects that include LGBTQ plus people, and I interview people who identify as queer, but maybe I'm not doing queer oral history. So that's something I've been thinking about a lot. And talking about my, you know, this is a more of a selfish question here. I'd like to know, what do you, do you think there is room for folks like me for the outsider interviews in queer oral history projects, or will these inevitably be LGBTQ plus oral histories? Yeah, I mean, that is a question to answer. And um, I mean, I think one thing that's really important, and I always want to make so clear um, with students, you know, is when it comes to oral history, one of the most wonderful things about the discipline is there's no one right way of doing things. And I actually find the freedom of that to be really inspiring, reassuring, and all the good things. Um, I mean, there are certainly some some wrong ways of doing oral history. I think we all agree that there are some definite things you shouldn't be doing, but there's no kind of, oh, this is the gold standard interview that could have taken place between me and this person, right? There's just an infinite realm of possibilities that, that could occur. And that's one of the things I absolutely love about it. It's just, it's so free. And the reason I want to make that point clear is because as I wrote in an article that I wrote for Oral History Journal a few years ago, the main thing is just to be aware of those differences that, if I interview somebody, you know, from my perspective as a gender non-conforming lesbian woman, uh, if I interview a queer person and then somebody else who might be heterosexual, cisgender, um, male, different age from me, different race from me, obviously those two interviews are going to be really different. Like that's, we all know that, oral historians know that. Um, we're not trying to, we never try to replicate an interview. What would be the point of that? And so in the article um, that I wrote for Oral Oral History Journal, I just said, you know, the idea is to be aware of the difference, not that one is necessarily better than the other, but just that they're different. And to be aware that there will be things that you can't hear that somebody else can hear and vice versa. You're not going to be told the same. You might be told the same story, but you're probably told in a different way. Or there may be some things that you're not going to be told. And there are some things that I know I've not been told. You know, you think you, you come away thinking, oh, that was such a candid interview. Well, yeah, it may well have been. But they still chose what they were going to tell me. And actually, there's a there's a, one of the chapters in this book is by Dan Royals. And he actually reflects on that, that he felt that his black interviewee um, who'd been involved in um, black AIDS activism, he came away thinking, wow, that was really candid. You know, it was great that we were able to kind of cross that divide. And, and Dan, as a, as a white researcher... And then he came to realize that actually the story that, that he'd got from the interviewee, you know, was was missing some component parts that the interviewee had for their own um, reasons, decided we're not we're not going to be aired that day and was able to present their own story of of that uh, activist community and, and time and place. And we just have to accept that. So for me is to say. One, okay, if we're doing queer oral history, yes, I think if we're going to talk about it as a method, then you have to be coming with some kind of disruptive intention. So if we're saying I'm using queer theory as in I would que- uh, queer oral history as in queer theory, then I say you're coming to hear something that's difficult to hear. And I'm going to use techniques and strategies which are going to disrupt our normal narratives, our normal expectation. And actually, I think you can queer, queer uh, oral history or queer LGBTQ oral history maybe. Because, for example... One of the dominant, in a, in a marginal field, what is one of the dominant narratives now is probably the coming out narrative, right? So we expect to hear that narrative from people. But if we only expect to hear that, then people almost feel they have to fit 
their story into that narrative. And maybe that's not the most important thing they want to tell you about, or maybe that's not relevant to what we're trying to hear. So actually to try to even work against that dot, which has become so expected by the mainstream, and I think also by by kind of the straight world also expects that coming out narrative. That's how they kind of understand queer people, make queer people legible. Oh, I was in and then I was out and then this this was this was me, right? That kind of like from one to the next. If we can kind of kind of push back against these expectations, that in itself is queer. So we can still we can even queer LGBTQ oral history. Um and I think probably anybody can take part in that. Uh, but I do also think at the same time, speaking as a queer person, and my uh, this is, is touched on a little bit in my chapter in here, my own um, current research with butch identifying uh, AFAB assigned female at birth interviewees, narrators, my positionality as a self-identified butch is incredibly important to that. In fact, it's integral to my question strategy and my, my question design. I'm trying to stage conversations where two people who share uh, a much maligned and uh, invisibilized identity can speak candidly to each other. And I absolutely know because I've they've told me I wouldn't be saying this to just anybody, right? So we, he- we hear what we're able to hear yes. and what people are able to tell us. Yes, thank you for that. Uh, that's been something that I've been thinking about as I, as you know, I'm going to start a new project right now. So that's, uh, I think this is a perfect time to have this conversation with you. So thank you so much. And of course, uh, we've already mentioned it twice. So let's get into it. We can't talk about right queer oral history without mentioning bodies of evidence. Could you introduce the book a little bit more to folks who may not be familiar with it? And how is New Direction in, in, is in queer oral history? You already started talking about this in terms of, you know, geographical location. But in what other ways uh, is this book sort of responding to, dialoguing with, and updating it 10 years later, like over a decade later now? Sure. Um, I mean, Bodies of Evidence came out. So it's it's called Bodies of Evidence. Um the practice of queer oral history. And the book came out, um, the the editors, uh, Boyd and Ramirez, were groundbreaking scholars. You know, they both were undertaking queer oral history, which already had a, 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 a burgeoning tradition in the States, but was far from having a canon, right? So, yeah, there was a, we would call it a small canon, a discrete bijou canon, I don't know. But um, they were keen to bring together scholars, and it was a US-centric book, uh, and that, that was their intention. Um, they were keen to bring together scholars from across the US who were working on LGBTQ or queer oral history. And I didn't realize at the time, it came out when I was doing my PhD. And I suppose it's that kind of thing where when you have something, you don't realize how lucky you are to have it. And I kind of didn't realize that there really was so little else and that they had made such a, a big intervention. And then it wasn't until a bit later I kind of looked around and was like, oh, there isn't anything else. Like, this is this is the first thing that's doing this. It was staging conversations. So people had written monographs, you know, like Lepo- uh, Elizabeth Lepofsky-Kennedy and uh, Madeleine Davis had written Boots of Leather, Slippers of Gold back in 1993. Esther Newton had written um, Mother Camp and um, Cherry Grove. So there were key books that were monographs on uh, LGBTQ communities. But there wasn't a a place where conversations were being staged. And so the collection brought together discussions of method, 
Uh, and it was radical in the sense that it was also calling for a queer oral history practice. Like all these people are doing this work. How can we call this a, a practice? How can we develop this as a field that we are all part of and bringing all that kind of knowledge together? Um, it was really revolutionary. People, you know, the fact that we can't, we literally can't have this conversation without talking about it. But it, then we think, okay, well, then 10 years passed. And I'm not saying that like loads of excellent more monographs came out, but it felt like those conversations, which I know were happening in groups like ours, um, with PhD students, you know, reading groups, things like that. It felt like there was another time to capture some of these discussions. Um, and we hoped that the book would be able to do that. So we'd be able to build on, you know, say, okay, what have we done in 10 years? Where has this practice that, you, that Boyd and Ramirez wanted us to formulate? Have we formulated it? Have we been successful? What more is there still to be done? And we also wanted to take it out of the US and we wanted to add a UK spin on it, as I said, because the UK has gone on to produce some excellent work in that regard. Two quite different disciplines, uh, disciplines, two quite different trajectories. But we wanted to mark that and we wanted to also bring, you know, we've got, we've got a range of Australian scholars um, in this collection too, Canadian scholars. So it brings together, I guess, that kind of, again, the book is admittedly extremely Western-centric and I will say that is a is a is a failure of the book and it's also still a failure of the discipline right so we we did really try to go beyond a kind of an anglophone um western centric uh collection and it was actually really difficult and it proved it proved pretty impossible for us to be as diverse as we wanted to be and i think that just shows you that we still have a lot of work to do in queer oral history and um developing that as a practice that can be taken on in a in a really global sense and there's a lot of different reasons for that that we don't have time to get into today but it is it is something that still needs to be done so that's one of the things we were trying to do geographically and we were also trying to i guess um boyd and ramirez had been particularly uh keen to talk about embodiment that was one of the key themes of the book and I wanted to sort of revisit that too um, and use kind of the, the interventions in queer theory and in oral history uh, that had come in, in its stead and sort of reflect back on that. So that's basically what we're trying to do. And one of the things that was amazing is that uh, Nan Alamia Boyd was, so, was kind enough to write our foreword for us, which is just so great. <laughs> If you'd have told me when I was a PhD student that she would be writing a forward for for a book that I was involved in, I would have been like over the moon, you know. And she was so positive. I got in touch with her and said, we're thinking about doing this. It would be great if you would write the forward. And she was just so encouraging that we, that we were going to put, I guess, another kind of flag uh, in the ground, you know, for um, for queer oral history, another marker to mark where we've where we've gone in that next 10 years so um it, i feel so happy that it has a real connection to bodies of evidence through that forward yes that, that, it was amazing when i when i saw that forward it was like yeah it establishes right this um how would i put it this i wouldn't not genealogy but it, there's like a, a heritage here that's been established and um so that was really beautiful yeah, 100%. And I'm really into the concept of queer heritage anyway. So this was like a really great, great, great thing for me. <laughs> so yeah, I'm really proud about that. So let's talk a little bit about the, the book sections. I wish we would have time to talk about each chapter because they're all uh, amazing, each one in, its, in their own way. But so I think a, a way to do this is to talk about the themes of the sections. And the first one deals with presence, absence, and the space between. Uh, the chapter discuss the gaps and silences in the process of conducting queer oral histories. 
So could you talk a bit about the how these chapters, uh, as you note, challenged established discourses of LGBTQIA plus lives and histories? Sure. And I think I maybe touched on this um, indirectly before when I said, you know, although we're talking about marginalized lives, we have over the course of the development of LGBTQ oral history, and I use that term meaningfully in this sense, uh, instead of queer, we have over the course of that development come to secure our own dominant discourses and dominant frameworks. And as I said, the coming out narrative for me would be the obvious one. But the ways in which we expect people to talk, and we all, we all go through this as, as oral historians, like you come to think, you know, there's the danger of kind of knowing what you're going to hear. Um, and so I really actually wanted to start the collection with a set of chapters that would already destabilize and make us think differently. So, and we actually start the collection with a chapter which reflects on oral histories with um, a gay man, but also a straight woman, and how both of those two people talking about the same small town can reveal what is seen and unseen by different people and two different people, if that makes sense. So already it begins by saying, by troubling the concept of, of what we know about queer oral history or what we as the so-called experts, you know, of, of these communities that we research can really know and hear. And then we also look at the kind of people who are often sidelined um, queer oral history or LGBTQ oral history for understandable reasons has been keen to tell the emancipatory stories, the bravery stories, um, the heroic stories, radical stories. And whilst that is incredibly important, it leaves behind a lot of other more complex, nuanced, problematic stories, maybe sometimes, or op the opposite can also happen. You might expect to hear only traumatic stories. So also making space for people who are not those necessarily the kind of, they haven't, their stories don't articulate a kind of a flag bearing, um, pride marching, you know, out and proud story. And it can be really difficult as oral historians uh, to get those stories because you can only interview the people who will speak to you. So, you know, and um, then you also have to do that terrible thing of uh, being an academic and figuring out how to then take hundreds of hours of recordings and try to condense it and compress it into some, you know, analytical uh, thing you've got to say about it and think, how can I do justice to that? And again, there's a, in that way, there's a, a, a danger that certain types of stories will, again, take center stage. So this, uh, we start the book off with just trying to question Things like bisexual invisibility, you know, is also really important. It's still, still a big issue in queer history and in queer culture, queer community. Um, and then things like intersectional identities as well, you know, like Jacob Evoy's chapter on um, LGBTQ plus children of Holocaust survivors, right? So bringing together these two apparently disconnected identities, like what could there be, be to say about this? Um, and, you know, Jacob Evoy's really new work is is saying, okay, what happens when we actually ask people about this very particular intersection? And that's a whole other thing that, that probably wouldn't be given airtime in just, air quotes, just a queer oral history. Among many other things, the chapters in the second section deal with composure and intersubjectivity. I think we talked a little bit about intersubjectivity, but if you have anything to add, uh, please do. But I wanted to know what does the theory of composure look like in queer oral history, especially when we are interviewing people whose identities are in flux? 
Sure. Um, is it useful to gloss composure, the concept of composure anyway? Would that be useful yes, for us please. to do that first? Yes. Um, yeah, so the concept of composure is something that I return to again and again and again and again because it always holds more for me. Oral history has come to really kind of grab onto and value this concept that we call composure. And it was developed, um, it's, it's been credited to both uh, Graham Dawson and Alistair Thompson, both uh, oral historians who, who work uh, a lot in the field of, of masculinity. And I won't go into a, a whole big description of it, but basically the theory of composure is a kind of, a, it uses a, employs a twofold definition of the word compose or composure. So to compose as in to create a story, Right. And the reason for that is to highlight and really foreground the creative element of oral history. We're not mining people for data. They're not sort of just passive repositories of facts. But narrators are our interviewees who create and compose narratives in the moment with us. You know, the, the oral history interview is a composition of a story, of a narrative. It also gives that sense of agency to the narrator, that they're the composer of this, this story. So to compose. But the second meaning is this idea of achieving composure. So to become composed, to become comfortable, a, a psychic comfort in telling one story in a way that can be heard um, and understood by other people. So this fantastic theory, which I've always grabbed onto and always found very, very generative, um, has just had so much traction in the oral history world ever since it was that you know we're we're like what I don't know like three de three four decades in, um, but because I've always enjoyed it so much, I've also then been curious to see what can it do for queer oral history. So I mean, you know, you, you say you can't have a queer oral history book without talking about bodies of evidence. I'm not sure you can have an oral history book without talking about composure. So we said, okay, so what are we going to do about what what makes queer composure different, right? Um, and again, it does take us back to what can be heard and who can hear what, because the concept of composure says that in order for you to become composed, to have that psychic comfort with your story, the person who hears it has to be able to understand it and understand you through your story that you told. So if there's no kind of cultural framework through which you tell a legible story, you can achieve that composure. So composure cannot be done by one person. Composure is a social project um, of understanding each other. It's a communication um, process. So if we talk about, you know, can queer people interviewing queer people, for me, that's a really important element of composure because I can understand that story. I can hear it. I might share some of those experiences and then I can also know what to ask. You know, we can, we can share that moment, that rapport. And I think that rapport that you can share can assist that particular type of queer composure that you're looking for. And that's not to say, again, that you can achieve composure with a different set of people, a different set, a different interview interviewer. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying, a queer composure might be about two queer people in a room having that narrative articulated and made legible in the space. Um, when we also talked about um, composure, we also kind of talked then about intersubjectivity. So the two people together, you know, our two subjective positions coming in to the space and allowing that composure project to take place. So again, that talks about the the very particular identities of the two people in the room um, and how that can aid this kind of queer composure. But you particularly asked about people whose identities are in flux. And I think that is really important to queer oral history. And again, it's why it's not particularly useful for me to say LGBTQ oral history, because that's about fixity and that's about quite definite labels. If we actually, and composure, that was when it started to trouble me, this concept of composure and 
something is, you know, becoming composed. What I started to think was, yeah, but in the minute the person walks back out in the world again, more things are added to their story. So do they then have to go and find more composure later on? Like, do we have to, is composure something that's like finished? And then I started to think, ah, okay, we can actually think about this through queer oral history with people whose identities change over time. And I mean, somebody like Victoria Golden's chapter, which looks at how somebody, we, we've sometimes used the word discomposure, which I think is probably most most commonly attributed to Penny Summerfield, maybe, to talk about discomposure. Certainly Victoria does in her chapter. The idea that if someone can achieve this psychic composure, their narrative might become halted, faltering. Uh, someone might become even defensive or obstructive or angry or frustrated because they can't make themselves heard. Um, or they may become upset or, you know, they just have a fragmentary narrative that breaks down, doesn't make a lot of sense, lots of pauses. Victoria's concept was really interesting to me because she said, you know, I think we when we were working on her chapter, she was um, talk, working on this idea that composure, because somebody's narrative is at odds with itself, we don't need to see that as inherently discomposed. We need to see it as a quite actually a very active, um, mobile, agile kind of composure, which allows the person to retain a sense of continuity of self against a backdrop of different identities and very different temporal moments. So particularly Victoria's chapter looks at someone who is on a trans journey, but who uh, previously identified as, as a butch lesbian and was very involved in the feminist movement. And so it's having to find a way to compose a narrative which allows for a stable self in the face of what they now perceive to be quite a transphobic community that they once were very affiliated with. So if we just say, oh, that person's narrative is discomposed, that, that's taken a lot of agency away from that person and saying, as soon as the context beyond you changes, you can't have your composure anymore. But actually, it requires a very agile narration to retain a sense of self through something that appears to be attacking externally your identity position. So I think that's, yeah, for me, that's just a fantastic example of the complexity of that. And, you know, I think we can really embrace this idea of like a fluid comp composure um, that asks us to say, well, you know, well, what, what happens what happens to each of us through our lives? We don't we don't kind of come dis, disjointed. We might do, uh, but for queer people, particularly who experience a, uh, a less fixed state of sexual or gender identity, we have to be able to extend that sense of agency, rather than otherwise a fairly I think a fairly problematic, maybe condescending stance that would say, well, that person is going to become discomposed because they're they see themselves differently now. So for me, that's that's one of the really exciting things to come out of the out of the collection. But then also just to say, you know, to, to, to kind of round that off, um, bisexuality features quite a lot in that in that section of the book, and I think that's important. And we try we tried to get as much LGBTQ plus you know alphabet soup diversity as we could in the collection, and um, we tried to make sure bisexuality, for example, which is very overlooked in queer history in general. We tried to look at how we could stitch that through the collection. And I think it uh, it shows itself really importantly here in trying to understand how to make sure we can hear bisexuality instead of hearing negative stereotypes about changing your mind, not being sure, not being out, being in, um, you know, th again, condescending um, negative uh, narratives. So bisexuality, I think, again, is really important to this idea of questioning queer composure. I love the idea of fluid composure. I'm going to keep that in mind. Uh, so then uh, we have the chapters that deal with the messiness of queer oral history. I absolutely love that. Could you 
talk a bit about your chapter's discussion of queer temporality and queer history. That I was really interested in that. It made me think about, you know, how I'm doing, how I'm thinking about the life uh, story interview. And as I try to employ sort of techniques or methods that I've learned before in, in, new, in a new context and I had to quickly adapt, right? Uh, when I started interviewing drag performers and the interview had two births, I've, I fell in love with that, that idea and then I, I embraced it uh, later on. But I think your, your um, discussion of queer temporality and queer oral history made me, uh, helped me think this through. Oh, thank you. That's very, that's very kind. I'm glad it was useful. Um, this is a topic that I have been messing about with and kind of kicking into the long grass for years because um, I find it so fascinating. And yet, well, I'm not very good at conclusions. All my conference papers end terribly with kind of like, and it's finished. Um, I'm just not very good at conclusions. So trying to figure out how to what I conclude from my investigations of temporality uh, always eludes me, but I still like playing with it. So this idea that, um, you know, queer time, so for people who are maybe not uh, overly familiar with queer theory, the concept of temporality has been really important to queer theory uh, for many, many years, and some absolutely foundational texts in queer theory have concerned themselves with the concept of queer time. And what exactly might that mean and how might it be different to straight time or, or however you might call it. And so obviously oral historians should be interested in time. I mean, already, I think like the, for me, the, the, the oral history, never mind queer oral history, for me, oral history is already temporally queer because it re- demands that we exist in different times at once, different temporal moments at the same time. We're sitting in the interview, which is now, and we look back in the past and try to sort of, I don't know, um, evoke the past uh, or, you know, materialize the past, um, conjure up the past and discuss it, always being reminded through those kind of meta statements, meta questions, reflective statements that we are very much in the present. You know, we're not getting in a time machine, go back to the past. We are discussing the past in the present. And we're also always talking for the future. Like the minute you turn the recorder on, you're talking for a future time. So to me, and, and for me, queer oral history talks to the future in a very important way. We are trying to uh, record our past, which many people have not felt important to record, in the now, in our queer community as it stands today. But for me, in a very hopeful way, that people will value this in the future. It's a bit optimistic project for me. Um, so I think it's already, I think any oral history is already queer because of that. <laughs> people can uh, write in if they don't agree and it's an interesting theoretical discussion. Um, or it has the, okay, it's not already, already queer. It's, it has the potential to be if you embrace that temporal queerness um but queer temporality for me is also about thinking how do we talk about life stories which often buck against conventional life narrative structures and elizabeth freeman's work on queer time her work time binds has been really important for me here because she talks a lot about um chrononormativity in other words the idea that people's lives sort of go to a rhythm which is presented to us as natural, but which is in fact socially, culturally, institutionally prescribed. Um, birth, childhood, which has a set of things that you have to kind of go through, adolescence with another set of rites of passage, if you like, Ma- marriage, children, alongside this is going a career where you're supposed to get, you know, progress in your career, children, uh, retirement, death, 
right? So everybody's supposed to do this kind of stuff at the same time. And anybody who wants to look up Freeman's work can take you through excellent um, analysis of this. So this is chrononormativity. But of course, many queer people's lives don't, don't do that uh, for lots of different reasons, sometimes by choice and sometimes because institutional and social and political forces don't allow you to do that. Um, some queer people talk about sort of a delayed adolescence because you're you're not able to uh, express yourself in your in your teenage years, and so you know coming out in later life, you may have sort of a second adolescence or a delayed adolescence or whatever, where you where you express yourself and do all the things that you want to do to sort of be free and be yourself. Um, many queer people have have pushed back against the idea of um, same sex marriage as being heteronormative and assimilationist. Um, and so Freeman's take is that you have to do all these things in order to have had a successful life, these kind of life markers, you know, cradle to grave life markers. If you don't do those things, you haven't led a successful, by which she means productive, capitalist productive life, right? You become a, a productive unit in society. So anyway, all that great theoretical stuff. How do I, how do you, I, I'm a big fan of theory if I can apply it, right? So that's, for me, oral history is so wonderful because it's so theoretically complex, but then I get to do something with it, right? I actually, um, I mean, shh, don't tell anybody, but I'm an English lit person by by uh, training. My PhD is in English lit. And when I found oral history, I was like, wow, this allows me to take all the stuff I love about literary studies and do something with it and speak to real people. And, I, you know, it's a great, it's a great confluence for me. So um, anyway, applying it means that we get to ask questions in a different way. We get to sort of turn, you know, basically turn things on their head if we want. Because what struck me was, what I started to worry about was that, hang on a minute, what if I, as a queer oral historian, I'm actually complicit in this chrononormative imposition that Freeman is talking about? Because I'm asking people a cradle-to-grave narrative. And maybe I'm actually stopping people from telling the story the way they want to tell it. So I love your point about two births like such an obvious example it's so great like as soon as you hear it you're like of course like we we need to think about this differently um and i have like i said i'm terrible at conclusions i have not come up with a way to actually deal with this but i'm trying um i do think that again to return to sort of overlooked narratives uh, in queer oral history trans narratives bisexual narratives the refusal of bisexuality to fix itself in one place to be this or that is really generative for this concept of queer temporality because you, you can't just go and then I was this and then I was that like the coming out story I realize I'm repeating myself but the coming out story is literally like well that first I was this and then I was that and then my life was wonderful right like that's what we expect to hear so in a way it becomes almost like chronomatively enforcing itself like you know you have to do that you know to be a successful gay again I'm doing air quotes successful gay person um, you've got to do that. And you have to do gay marriage and all the rest of it. So it really uh, struck me that I might actually be complicit in this. So I'm still working with this. And I, in, the, what I, in the chapter, what I kind of try to work through is how by creating a space which is avowedly, committedly queer for that oral history to take place and try to kind of close off that world of expectation that's outside and just really bring two queer people together. You know, my, my interviews with Butch people, AFAB Butch's, um, both uh, current butches and former butches, I interview um, quite a few trans men for and masculine center people for the book too. And thinking, how do we harness some of the intimacy that can happen when we come together to talk about these uh, the, the interiority of butchness? That intimate space, what can that do to push back against the temporalities outside that are kind of trying to collapse in on us all the time? And in my chapter, I just talk about how we kind of got lost in time, really. Me and a narrator who we just kind of, we just kind of didn't really care, you know, what, 
what time it was or what was going on. We were just so fixed in this wonderful discussion of like holding female masculinity at the center uh, to the exclusion of all else. And that the, the affective component of that was, was really amazing for me. So foregrounding the now of the interview where we can is also for me um, creating that temporal moment where we can really value that and value the joy of that moment. Like the concept of queer joy also comes into this um, by making a space that's just ours, that's not anybody else's. So uh, Boyd and Ramirez in Bodies of Evidence were really uh, into the concept of, you know, the space of the interview. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is that the temporal space is also really important, as is the physical space. So, but it's very conceptual. And as I, like I say, I need to, <laughs> more needs to be done. But it's a start, it's a start. Well, thank you so much for that that, that chapter, as I, as I said. But um, that's... Talk a little bit about the final chapter, because in the circles, oral history circles that I have access to, there's been a lot of discussion lately about the concept of sharing authority. Folks are trying to update or question um, the concept. How are the chapters in section four dealing with that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. The concept of sharing authority, you know, is really as old as the discipline itself, almost, as we understand it today. And it uh, is perennial. And um, in fact, the Oral History Society Conference, which is happening in Nottingham uh, this coming weekend, is on the concept of shared authority, kind of taking it out and having a look at it again and seeing, you know, where are we? And um, this, uh, the final section of the book, I think perhaps will be, um, if you're a practitioner oral historian, um, someone who is working maybe in a community project or using oral history for creative outputs, I think this final section would be really interesting for you. The whole thing will be, of course, but this is maybe where you would start um, because it looks at how we actually co-create with um, our participants, narrators, um, and it goes through, for example, uh, an oral history and photography project where um, an, an artist came in after the fact. This is Emma Vickers's chapter. Uh, a photographer came in after the fact to do portrait photographs with people who'd already been interviewed. They were uh, trans um, veterans of the armed forces. And so working with the interviewees in getting a, a portrait which spoke to them and which encapsulated for them their narrative. So it's also about not just co-production with narrators, but also co-production with other um, creative people who may come into a project either, you know, at any, any particular point. We also have um, work on, for example, how to work with students in oral history. And that's really important. You know, if you want to do an oral history project, a queer oral history project with students who certainly may not be queer, like a lot of students take queer classes who are not who are not LGBTQ themselves. So how do you do that work? And what does that look like in terms of the ethical imperatives? You know, ethics comes into that final section. Ethics is all through the book, but it comes into that final section really importantly too, like because sharing authority has a lot of ethical questions and reflections. You know, I think sometimes we have this idea like, oh, we should definitely share authority and we should make sure that the narrators are involved in every aspect of the the project because that is inherently the best way to do it. And actually, it might not be <laughs> really as simple as that. And um, if it's not ethically mindfully done, then uh, that can cause its own difficulties. You know, in in um, Jane Trace's uh, chapter on working with um, lesbian and bisexual women seeking asylum in the UK, there are huge ethical complications um, around working with people who are at real serious risk by taking part in the project and by being visible as a lesbian or bisexual woman, um, whose stories are uh, also 
part of often um, asylum applications where these people are being made to tell their stories over and over again to the Home Office. And, you know, what might it be for them to tell a story? You know, could could that be used in some way against them? So ethics and sharing authority, you know, it looks like a lot of different things to a lot of different people, obviously. And I guess what that section does, which I really like about it, is it considers, it's very case study approach, that section too. It considers how and why to share authority. You know, it's not just the how, but it's why am I doing it? Like, why are we invested in sharing authority in this way in this project and what what will that do for our narrators because if it doesn't have added value for our narrators is it like what is actually the point of it is it just something else for me and it can done correctly obviously sharing authority one of the prime reasons to think about it is to work out the kinks of the power dynamics that are you know at play in oral history practice um and so i i really enjoy the case studies in that section uh, you know, for example, Claire Summerskill, my other co-editor's chapter on interview, conducting oral history interviews and then creating verbatim theatre, where you literally take exactly what the person said. It's not doing oral histories and then doing your own script. It's that's kind of made up. It's taking people's interviews and literally verbatim, somebody performs it on the stage. Now, that could be very shocking for somebody. Like, can you imagine the impact that could have, like, to see your own self portrayed on the stage, your own words? So, being aware of like the, how people feel about that, like what is the afterlife of the interview? And many academics, we, we have to think a bit less about the afterlife of the interview, like where could this end up, right? Um, whereas I think creative practitioners have to think about this like all the time. And it's not just like a few academics might read my paper. It's like hundreds of people might come to the show, <laughs> which is very different, right? And communities might come to the show. The people I interviewed might come to the show or the people I interviewed might come to the exhibition. So public, I'm a public historian as well. So for me, it was really important that we made sure we had a section like this. Yeah, that's no, it's a really, really important section uh, that uh, I'm definitely will be going back to over and over. Before we go, can you share with us what you're working on uh, next, what you've been working on since this book? Sure. Um, yes, I am in the process of finishing uh, another edited collection, co-edited collection. As you can see, I enjoy editing people's work, you know, from working on notches to working on edited collections. I really, I do love collaborative projects. You know, I really, I, I really enjoy um, working with um someone's chapter and really getting it you know so that it really shines through what they want to say with this like i really enjoy that work with authors so i'm working on another co-edited collection which is with my colleague uh, roisin ryan flood who's at um essex and that is uh, a book called uh, queering desire colon lesbians gender and subjectivity and we're just finalizing the manuscript on that now it's a very interdisciplinary collection of sociology history, media studies, sort of digital uh, studies, digital humanities, um, looking at really foregrounding lesbian desire, which has really been, um, and you know, lesbian, which I take to mean sort of an umbrella term for, I guess, same sex female desire, um, which has really been overlooked both in, in sociology, social studies, uh, social sciences, I should say, and in the humanities. So really pleased about that. That's going to be coming out, um, well, hopefully uh, when next next year. Um, so look out for that. It's coming out with Routledge. And then once I've got that uh, off my desk, then I can get back to my book proposal for my own monograph, which is coming out of my recent wonderful, wonderful experiences of interviewing Butch and former Butch people, 
uh, for my project, which is currently has a working title, which will not be the title of the book, but it's a working title, Historicizing Butch, uh, Narrating Butch Lesbian Identity and Lived Experience, 1950 to the Present. I've done research trips to the West Coast of America, East Coast of America, and around the UK. Um, I've interviewed uh, over 50 um, butchers and former butchers, uh, AFAB, assigned female at birth people, um, about their experience of being butch, because our historiography of butch, and my contention is that um, our historiography of butch, butches are really visual identity. It's like, oh, we know that when we see it, like I can see, you know, butch hair, butch style. So yeah, it's really, it's really how people exhibit their masculinity is very visual. But and then historiography, it's often been seen as like we've looked at Butch as a way to understand the social dynamics of the lesbian scene. But my contention as a very proud uh, self-identifying Butch myself is that Butch is always seen and very rarely heard. So what does it feel like to be Butch? How do we articulate something? Because the visual seems reductive to me because I'm more than the clothes that I have on. If I take them off, I'm still Butch. So how do we articulate that? That And that's what I've spent many, many hours doing there. And unfortunately, I now have to figure out how on earth to take all these wonderful, beautiful, moving, funny stories um, and say something halfway uh, sensible and intelligent about them. And also, really importantly, do justice to them. You know, it's, it's so difficult. So that's what I'm working on uh, right now, my book proposal for that. Um, and I hope that I will be able to do these stories justice. And they will also be archived. So even if I can't do them justice, people will be able to listen to them. Wonderful. Yeah, I can't wait to read both projects. And I don't know how to thank you uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. I feel that it's this immense privilege to be able to have this conversation with you two days before hopping on on a plane to start a new oral history project. So this... I'm just feeling very, very privileged right now. Thank you so much, Amy. Oh, thank you. And I'm so excited about your project. I really cannot wait to hear more about it. And I think people are going to be super excited to listen to these interviews and uh, just hear about this experience. It sounds phenomenal. So good luck. Thank you. And to the folks listening to us, thank you for tuning in to this episode of New Books and Gender Studies, a podcast from the New Books Network. I just spoke with Dr. Amy Tooth Murphy about New Directions in Queer Oral History, Archives of Disruption. I'm Isabel Machado. Until next time.